right now. All right, so we're going through church history, which is kind of the way we always start, I know. And we're coming to the end of the Age of Enlightenment, and we're going to talk about some things where people are starting to feel like it's intolerable. You just can't handle it. We've, we've already kind of built the foundation for this idea of we're changing everything, but, but beyond just that, oh, we're going to do something funky, we're going to start toppling things. We're going to start saying we're, we're making fundamental wholesale changes. We've had people kind of get splashes of cold water in their face saying whole nations getting surprised and saying we really have to change some things. Now people are starting to really get fed up with some stuff. To get to that point, you need to understand this. Um, I love the pop-ups here. Um, when we left last week, we talked about Pyotr III becoming emperor of the Russias. And if you say, I don't remember much about Pyotr, it's because he was only emperor for maybe a minute and a half. The most important thing is that Catherine became empress of the Russians. That's more, that's more to the point here. Although technically, since she's born in Pomerania, which is right over here, we could arguably call her by her German name Katarina, or we could call her by the Polish name Katarzyna, especially since her name is Sophie. Name wasn't Catherine at all. She was born Sophie, raised that way. She only changed it once she took the throne and became Katarina in, in, in Russian. So, whatever you want to call her, I don't care. But since people, I, you know, I normally try to call people by the name that we know them by, or no, by the name they would have been known by by their people. But since she's had a bazillion different names, I'm going to go, all right, with this one, I'll just do the one we're most familiar with here in the United States, called Catherine. 1739, 10-year-old Sophie, Catherine, Sophie, 10-year-old Sophie, met her 11-year-old betrothed, Carl Peter Ulrich. And neither of them liked each other at all. And just could not stand each other. She hated him. Because he liked to get drunk with the adults too much. He's 11, okay? Loved to get drunk with the adults, and yet still liked to play with his toy soldiers. So she's like, you're immature both ways. You know, you are an immature adult, and you're an immature child. And his Holstein family pampered him, said, whatever you want, anytime you want, we'll always give it to you. She's like, all he is is a spoiled little brat. can't stand him. They're like, yep, that's going to be your husband. She's like, yay. Anyway, Carl's technically the heir apparent of Russia and Sweden. Kind of got stuck in, it's like nobody got the memo that he's actually going to be king of Sweden and king of Russia. It really is interesting because neither side realized that he was the heir apparent to the other side. And so eventually they're like, Wait, what? You can't do that. Anyway, but they got married in this uh, Russian Orthodox wedding in 1745 in St. Petersburg, which meant that they now are officially both part of the Russian house of Romanov. They had been part of other houses, Holstein, etc., but now they're like, okay, now we're officially Romanovs because that's the, the house we're marrying into. Okay, whatever. By that time, Carl's calling himself Peter, Pyotr, and had been disfigured by smallpox, had become just a, a slime of a human being. He loved to sleep with all sorts of different people. He loved rough, cruel humor. He loved beating people and saying, I'm the king, you've got to let me do this. He loved humiliation games. Just the sort of person you go, you're about as reprehensible as you can get. And she's like, yeah, my, my husband. Could not stand each other. They hated each other completely, and it appears to have surprised absolutely nobody that their only living child, Paul, looked nothing like Peter <laughs> at all, but looked a lot like her favorite lover, Sergei. And I say favorite lover because Catherine, like, remember we talked about this before, like most sovereigns of the time, were expected to have multiple lovers. That's what you're supposed to do. Because otherwise, you'd have to sleep with your spouse. Who's going to do that? Or you have to go find a hooker on a street. And that's inappropriate for a royal. So pretty much have a whole bunch of lovers. She had a whole string of lovers over the years. Like a harem? Well, this, well actually, sort of. I mean, like uh, Louis XIV was famous for having essentially a harem. He had a whole series of apartments where all his mistresses lived. It was like a whole wing of his palace that you could get to from a couple different secret passages and things, and they all lived together. It was kind of like a harem. Catherine actually had a string of lovers. She didn't usually have more than one at the same time, but so she would just kind of her boy toy, and as they aged, she'd dump them and get a new boy toy. Anyway, her son looks a lot like this boy toy. 
And uh, Kyoto didn't really appreciate that, as you can imagine. But he didn't care because he didn't really like her anyway. So, 1762, they ascend to the throne of the Russias. Peter negotiates the end of Russia's involvement in the Seven Years' War. He's like, okay, because remember we talked about that last week. Big, huge thing affected lots of different things. And he made sure that the Holsteins made out really well. Because like the British Hanovers, Peter favored the Holsteins more than he favored Russia. So even as he's, he's saying, let's, let's make sure Russia gets out of this okay, he's willing to gut Russia as long as the Holsteins back in Kiel make out well. Not a well-liked guy. So even the people in Russia, even the nobles in Russia, even the military in Russia are all sitting like, I kind of hate our Tsar. You know, I, 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 this, this guy is really annoying to me. Six months into the reign, Catherine leads a coup against her own husband. She's already empress, okay? So it's not like she is leading a coup so that she becomes empress. She leads a coup so that he stops being emperor. How messed up do you have to feel that your husband is? That you're not even like, man, I'm going to see if I can undo what you... You have to go, we have to make him stop now. We have, this is intolerable. We have to make Peter stop. She's backed by the Russian military and the Russian Orthodox Church. The Russian military actually supports her, and the church says, we will crown you. Yeah. She's only empress because she's married to Yep. But if she owns it doesn't unless you have the backing of the military and the church. And the military says, we'll follow you. And the church says, we will crown you. You're right. Technically, she's only empress because she's married to him, and he's the next heir apparent. But if she gets the people who are the powers that be to say, we will declare you sole empress, she gets to be sole empress. Here's the thing. It's, it's, what is it, like the, the classic, it's the golden rule, whoever has the gold makes the rule? And, and, and that's kind of the way it is here. It's like, whoever has the most pointy sticks gets to be in charge. And so she forces him to abdicate, declare her Russia's sole ruler. He is no longer ruler. He's in captivity. And immediately dies while in captivity. Oh. Now, Sounds like it's time for a poison. It cut, like he gets strangled by his own bodyguard. Now, by his own bodyguard. His own bodyguard. Okay. Which, we don't know. There's absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing, no documentation to prove that she actually was, was behind it. In fact, there's a lot to suggest that she liked the idea of pretty much keeping him in solitary confinement for the rest of his natural life. That, that sounded like a good thing to her. She would write about how she was looking forward to just basically looking in on him once a year, poking him with a stick. You know, this, that, that's, that's what she wanted. But apparently he's so intolerably obnoxious that his own bodyguard goes, oh, I'm done with you. So, uh, so yeah, Catherine's now in charge. How old was he when he died? Uh, uh, I don't know, in his uh, early 30s, mid-30s. Anyway, so, yeah. Are they still in line for, uh, for Sweden, or because it was him in line yeah. for Sweden now? That, 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 that all got sticky, and now no, she's not in, at least I believe she's not in charge of Sweden. Because Sweden's sitting there going, woo-hoo, we, you know, we, we went free, free lines, yay! Because we're Sweden! Remember in, you remember in the, in the Seven Years' War, Sweden's like, yeah, our buddy Russia! Russia goes, yeah, we're going to take over Sweden. Sweden goes, hey, wait, no, wait, what? And at the end of the Seven Years' War, everyone goes, Reboot back to the to the old boundaries and the old things, and Sweden's sitting there going, "I don't feel comfortable." You know, that's, that's pretty much the way it was. So Catherine says, "All right, I'm going to follow Kyoko to the great's example. We're going to modernize. We're going to Europeanize Russia. We're, I'm going to do Peter, and I'm going to keep doing it." She actually styled herself as the commander in chief of the military and grew the military. I love this painting. How often do you see a queen dressed in men's military gear up on a horse? She's sitting there going, yes, I'm the general in charge of everything. And not even right side side. Not even right side side. It's like, nope, nope, nope. I got me a sword. <laughs> I mean, even most kings, when they're on the horses, don't necessarily get a sword. I got me a sword. And the military's like, still better than Peter. Yeah, we're fine. We're totally fine with that. So she was able to see Russia grow. They expanded to take over Siberia in the east. And then they also expanded to take over Kiel and the Crimea in the West. I don't know if you're familiar with the idea. Russia wants the Crimea. 
You may not have realized this if you live under a rock. But the Crimea is on the edge of the sea here, and Russia goes, I kind of want to be from sea to shining sea. I kind of want to be all the way over here, all the way over here, and all the way over to the Pacific. I kind of want everything to be Russia. And it's not like... That's destiny, man. I know, I know. And uh, so it's... It's not even like, they're, well, they're spreading communism. Like, no, I just pretty much want to stretch across the whole continent and into yours. Well, so, not in the warm water ports. <coughs> all the ports. They want all the ports. But yes, they want more warm water ports, too. Um, she's also able to encourage hunters and trappers from Siberia, a group called the Promis Lenyenki, or uh, Leniki, which means the, the traders. Promis Leniki. Do Russian, you have to like twist your tongue around to do it right. But anyway, then she, she called that she asked for these guys to go to Alaska. They're like, why don't you guys do hunting and trapping in Alaska? We'll help you do hunting and trapping in Alaska. Because what I want to do is start setting up a proper claim to those lands too. Because manifest destiny, I want to stretch all the way across Asia, I want to stretch into Europe, and into North America. So you go, great! Except what's interesting is um, the first Russian settlement in, in Alaska predates the first Spanish settlements in California. So the first settlers on the west coast of America, first European settlers on the west coast of America, were the Russians. I thought the Russians were Asians. Well, it depends on who you ask. Because, I mean, uh, if you ask a Siberian, they'd say, well, actually, that's probably not good. If you ask one of the stands, They'll say we're we're Asian. The Siberians like to link themselves with the with the proper Rus over there on the, the on the left hand side of Russia. And thanks to Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, the Rus and whole of Russia likes to think of themselves as European. We're just European that stretches over to Asia. But if you're in Asia and you're from Asia, doesn't that make you Asian? They're like, no, no, no. We're Europeans who happen to be from. And ethnically part of Asia. Then you're Asian. No, no, no. We're Europeans. Whatever. Anyway. That's no fun. I want to see if I can get that so it doesn't do anything. Um, one more. Let's go. Oh. Okay, she also used uh, her military to establish what they called the European League of Armed Neutrality. That's a contradiction in terms. Isn't it? What it is, is it's like a very heavily armed Switzerland. Because you know, remember, you don't mess with Switzerland. they got the Swiss guards, which is why Switzerland can be neutral. Same thing with her. She's like, how about all the nations that aren't currently at war with people, we all band together to say, don't mess with us on the high seas. Which is extremely helpful because the British Navy is crazy powerful now after the, after the Seven Years' War, and they're harassing people on the high seas. And she's like, okay, if we're not at war with England, and England has a navy that can topple any one government, they can't topple all of them. So it's like, how about if we all, anybody who's not currently at war with England, how about if we all get together and say, if you mess with our ships, then we, all mass, will mess with you. And you know, okay, that's detente. You know, so it can kind of work. This was extremely helpful for the American merchants during the fledgling days of the revolution. Because you sit there and you go, all right, we just won our Revolutionary War, and now we're on the high seas, and England's like, we don't really formally recognize you as a country. We're pretty much going to mess with you and do whatever we want because we can. And America goes, hey, League of Armed Neutrality, we'd like to get in on that. We'd love to help support the Spanish and the Russians and things on the high sea with our dinghies. You know? <laughs> but so Russia would sit there and go, England, you don't get to mess with American merchants on the high seas. You lost your war. You don't get to do this. Part of why we continued as a nation was because of Catherine the Great and her League of Armed Neutrality. Also, real religious views continue doing the same things that Peter did, Pyotr the Great did. She officially took over all church lands in Russia. So like, those now belong to the crown. Um, and Larger parishes, you know what? We're going to take your tithes. We're going to take all your goodies. We're going to pay for the military expansion. I, I'm a patron of the arts, so we're going to pay for the arts. This is what we're going to do. 
Now, part of it, you should sit there and say, well, that's horrible. I mean, she's taking everything over. And the Russian truck supported her. Yes. And then she sort of shot him in the back. Yes. Okay. Also realize, though, from her perspective, again, in, in history, we always got to remind ourselves, other than Rodrigo Borgia, there are very few white hats and black hats in history. You look at King Otto and you go, ooh, white hat. King Alfred, ooh, white hat. Rodrigo Borgia, ooh, black hat. You know, So you, you, there are a couple people. But in general, these people are complex. Even when we looked at people like Torquemada or Cromwell, you go, there's layers here. To her, to the church, they're sitting there going, well, you're just taking us over. We, we, we were on your side, and you, you're being obnoxious. From her perspective, she says, all right, I'm trying to modernize my country. I'm trying to, to liberate the serfs who are like a half step away from being a slave. And you guys have gold everything. Your priests drink the finest wines. You, you have pheasant under glass every night for dinner and lobster tails. And my people are starving and dirt poor and I'm trying to elevate them. I'm trying to build schools. I'm trying to make sure that, that we don't have internal fighting all the time. I'm trying to bring peace. I need money to do that. And you're sitting there going, well, not the church's money. Good word for Jesus. <laughs> Give me the gold goblet. And she's like, no. No, I'm using that. So is she evil or is she good? Is she helping the church? Is she hurting the church? Is she helping the people, hurting the people? The answer to that is, yeah, sort of. I'm not saying that what she did was good. What I'm saying is she didn't swoop in and go, <laughs> black handlebar mustache. I'm, a woman. I'm stealing all your stuff because I hate Jesus. It wasn't like that. What she's saying is, is I can use this stuff that you're hoarding to do things that I genuinely think are good things. Much of it, yes. Now, again, though, I think there's all sorts of repercussions that are very dangerous here. Is that now she's saying? Well. I mean, did she still technically this would be more like fascism? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Still, so she just pretty much took their money. Yeah. So at least it yeah, wasn't she, like she was trying to wipe out. No. I mean, so she, yeah. Or, oh, no, not even remotely that. No, she saw herself as religious. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, but she did deny the rights of any non-church, uh, non-Orthodox churches to build or operate in, the, in, the, in, in Russian territory. She saw herself as extremely Russian Orthodox. She didn't grow up Russian Orthodox. I think she grew up Lutheran. Um, but she's like, nope, no Lutheran, no nothing. I, I converted to Russian Orthodox. This is the only church. She did, however, open the doors for religious tolerance for other faiths. Not other Christian faiths, but other religious faiths. So, like, Islam and Judaism, sort of. Islam was regulated but allowed in the territories that they took from the Ottoman Empire. You get to be Muslim, but we're going we're gonna to make sure that we, we keep you from going over Muslim things. You get to be Jews in the areas we just took over from Poland and we're going to regulate and heavily tax you. So you got like double taxes if you're Jewish. But when you realize that most of the other countries sit there and go, you don't get to be Jewish, double tax doesn't sound so horrible. So she's like, double tax. And so a subculture of Russian Jews emerges that Again, heavily taxed, but they start developing their own set. Have you have you heard the term Russian Jew before? As if that were its own subculture. And you go, yep, that concept of the Russian Jew, that there's a place there where you can find your own cultural identity, Catherine the Catholic. Um, remind me, and we will talk about the subculture of Russian Jews later on, and, and, and how that evolves, and especially, okay, how many of you have ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, good. Especially once you get to the Fiddler on the Roof stage, you go, all right, how is the culturally Russian Jew population going to deal with early burgeoning communism and the end of the, the Tsarist regimes? How are they interacting? That's what this play, is, this musical, is all about. It's got some really neat music, and it's about matchmaking and all that kind of stuff. But really, really at its core, one of the reasons I, I like Fiddler on the Roof, I like Sound of Music, because though they have good music, there's actually a really interesting core story going on in there, the book behind it. And so the, the core story here is, we have our cultural identity as Russian Jews. How do we interact with the Christians? 
how do the Christians interact with us, especially once the Christians feel like they're in danger of losing power on a political level, who do they decide to roughhouse and why? That's really what this, this, this musical is all about. <clears throat> so there's that. Catherine reigns 34 years until um, her death at the age of 67, earning her the name Catherine the Great, which puts her in the same place as the, quote, three enlightened rulers, unquote, of this time. There's, like, three big names. There's Catherine the Great, Friedrich the Great, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, Frederick the Great, and Emperor Joseph II, who we'll talk about here in a second. But, anyway. 16, or 1763, Augustus Top Lady wrote the, the, uh, wrote the, the hymn Rock of Ages. Yeah, okay, don't make fun of the man's name. He was raised by his mom because his father died in the War of Jenkins' ear. Because that was a thing, right? And we talked about this, and you've got to remember these things. Anyway, he's enrolled at Trinity College. And here's a message from a preacher, a Wesleyan preacher named James Morris, and comes to know the Lord. He's like, I, I, I make a decision for Christ, or I have an effective call for Christ, or however you want to view that. And so being a really good Wesleyan, he's a strong Arminian. He's like, yep, because that's, that's what Wesley was like. He's like, yep, I'm going to teach this kind of stuff. I made a decision. But then, three years later, he reads a century-old sermon by a Puritan named Thomas Manton, and he says, you know, no, Calvinism, that's where, that's where truth lies. Okay, that, that was really interesting in the back row. To see, to see Randy smile and, and, and... You probably nodded. Randy smiled and Sarah facepalm. Stop <laughs> So, So Top Lady starts off. On the plus side, I used you guys as an example yesterday when I was at a seminar. Because somebody asked me, so you're a good reformed church? I'm like, yes, and ever reformed. And I'm, I'm simple reformed. Yes, we're always reforming. And they said, no, 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 I mean, I, said, I know what you mean. And, but I, I said, no, we, we, the whole point is that we have open conversations. It's not, it's not so much the, some of the theological interpretive conclusions we come to as much as the hermeneutic of saying we all want to go back to Scripture. In fact, I've got one leader who, who is absolutely fine with being an Armenian and another, another leader that actually went to Calvin College, and they actually like each other. And so I'm like, booyah. People looked at me, people looked at me funny. They're like, because uh, there's a Southern Baptist church. And they're looking at me like, they're like, how does that work? They have to have someone between them, though. <laughs> anyway. So, top lady became such a Calvinist, so ardently Calvinist, they became an ardent opponent of Wesley. He, he refused to admit he'd ever been Arminian. No, I'd never been a Wesleyan. No, no, Morris, the guy who was a Wesleyan that I No. He was never, no, I didn't make a decision for Christ. I had an effective call from Christ. Because you don't make a decision for Christ. He calls you, and then you just go, oh, that's right. <laughs> so he, beca he became this huge, huge opponent of Wesley. From 1762 to 1764, he worked on becoming ordained as a priest in the Anglican Church, and he wrote hymns as part of that. And in 1763, he wrote the hymn, Rock of Ages. Say, everybody knows of that hymn? Okay, good, okay, okay. As with many of these classic hymns, there's a lot of different versions of it floating around. The first version, Top Lady demonstrated a snippet of Wesleyan theology that's worth commenting on. The original first verse went like this. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. There are two parts of the salvation process. Calvinist Arminians both would more or less agree to some of this stuff. Justification, where God justifies you at conversion, pays for your sins, imputes righteousness, says, you are righteous, but you're in the righteous category. I'm, I'm de declaring that everything's been paid for. You may not be righteous, but I tend to, I look at you and I go, I declare that you are righteous in my sight. You are now justified. And sanctification. The sanctifying, setting a part of your life that you'll do for the rest of your life. That needs to be part of that process. Right? Which is why Paul will say, I was saved, I am being saved, and at the end I will be saved. He uses all three of those verb tenses at various points. It's all part of it. To Wesley, God not only imputed righteousness, he actually 
imparted righteousness to us as well. He not only said, when I look at you, I'm going to decide, in my eyes, you're righteous. God also says, by the way, here, take some of my righteousness upon you, and that will actually help you to sanctify yourself as time goes on. I will give you that kind of power and infuse you, transfuse you with my righteousness. Alright? Thus, what God is doing, according to Wesley, is to do some sort of second work of grace. There was that work of grace that saved you. But subsequent to that, there's also this move that God has in your spirit to start drawing you closer and closer to him. And that's where, that's where the salvation really kind of kicks in. I'm not asking you if you agree with that. Don't be, people look at me like, ah, but you know, do you understand what he's saying? Is that you know, there's someone else where God goes, all right, now that you have been set in the wind column, now I'm going to give you the grace so that you can start moving toward that, and that will change you. And that's when you can technically say your salvation has kind of sunk in. Wasn't it a bit like the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the charismatics? Well, I mean, isn't it? Yep. Because it was similar, because I thought a lot of the Wesley movement had that. There was like some kind of outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was making them say... Yep. The, the, the holiness movement that we'll talk about in the next century, and the Pentecostal, modern Pentecostal movement that we'll talk about really pretty much in the century after that, all of which kind of pull from this and say, and at some point the Holy Spirit really kicks in. A good, you talk to a good Pentecostal or, or, or charismatic today, and they'll say, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Subsequent to salvation, has the Holy Spirit kind of come upon you in power so that you are, you are changed into a more godly person. Eric and I were talking about this the other day. Grammatically, in many ways, that actually does jive with Scripture. There are times where in Scripture where people who have the Holy Spirit in them are at that moment, punctiliarly, filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're following. We'll talk about this more when we get to the Pentecostal movement. But the whole point of that is that it's at that moment. At that moment, you're super saturated with the Holy Spirit. So when people come and go, I'm a Spirit-filled Christian, I Depending on the relationship that I have with them, I will oftentimes say, at the moment? Yeah, kind of. Like, but if you go, I'm a spiritual Christian, I'm like, right now? Because your whole point is that there are times where, at that moment, Peter, overflowing with the Holy Spirit, addressed the crowd. You are, right now, super saturated and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. If not, you are grammatically incorrect. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Well, the flame's got to be for something. See, there's the flame. Yeah, and, 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 and that whole thing is the move of the Holy Spirit, yeah. yeah. So, when Top Lady wrote this last couplet, he's talking about the second work of grace. Because he's saying, let the water and the blood be of sin the double cure. Justify me from your wrath and sanctify me by making me pure. The two parts of this. Which is really interesting. So if you sing this version of the song, congratulations, you're an Arminian. And a Wesleyan Arminian with second work of grace. Yeah, I know. Isn't it funny? I ran into this when I interviewed with the missionary church. Isn't it cool? Just a sec. I'll get to that. I ran into this when I was interviewing with the missionary church um, to be a missionary church pastor in Ohio. Um, one of the one of the elders that I was talking to said, uh, "Have you have you had that second work of grace?" And that's the first time I'd run into it. I'm like, "Who did what now?" And he explained to me, "He's like subsequent to salvation, where the Holy Spirit comes upon you and really changes you." And I was, "Do you see that in Scripture?" And he started giving me some scriptural background to it. And I'm like, okay, I do agree that we sanctify, and we need to sanctify ourselves post-justification. Why does it have to be a subsequent to salvation thing? And he's like, well, because you are justified, and you can't be sanctified until you're justified. So at some point after that, God gives you this ability to, to be set aside. And I'm like, well, and I do, I do think that anything that I'm doing right to sanctify myself is a gift from God. Okay, and you're like, so when was that? Biblically, what's the gap have to be? He's like, what? Like, How long do you have, does it have to be? And you're justified, and then you have to wait at least a week? <laughs> How long was it for the thief on the cross between the time that he said, basically, I, I believe in you, and the time that Jesus says, great, you're saved. I'll see you in paradise. And I said, well, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a rule about that. Said, Is it possible that you can have that? Second work of grace 
like a nanosecond immediately after justification? Well, I don't think scripture says that. Eh, yeah, but you just said scripture doesn't say anything about this. Is it possible that you, ha you can have that second work of grace a heartbeat after the first work of grace? He's like, yeah. And I said, okay, then yeah, I got that. And then a second after, after my salvation, God lovingly gave me the grace to be more and more like him. I think any good Calvinist would agree with that. And I, I got away with it because the district superintendent sat there and, and, and started laughing. And he's like, you know, he's got a point. And it's like, yeah. Don't they but, but you didn't get the job, right? Yes, he did. <laughs> That's what the Pentecostals would say. The Pentecostals and Charismatics say that they, they don't talk about second work of grace. They talk about spiritual infilling, uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit, more. And yes, they would say, uh, a lot of Charismatics would say that the initial manifestation of being filled with the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. The missionary church goes, no, we're not Charismatic. No, second work of grace. Anyway, all of this was not lost on some of his opponents and some of his supporters. They're like, you know, you talk a good Calvinism, but you, uh, you're right in this. So he Calvinized it. So when he actually published it in 1776, he had this version. Be of sin, the double cure, save me from its guilt and power. That doesn't rhyme with flow. I know, it doesn't rhyme with cure either. Power. It's supposed to rhyme with cure. Cure and power. Blood and flowed. A cure of power. Cure rhymes with power as much as blood rhymes with float. So, <laughs> point is that this is a much more palatable thing. When I say double cure, I'm saying sin's guilt and power. Both of those get cured. Which actually doesn't make as much sense. Because but it avoids that second work of grace thing. Yes? But then you've got like sin being a singular and a plural at the same time. Exactly. Time. Grammatically, I struggle. Yeah. Does anybody know which version we have in our hymnal? Check it out. Alright! You want me to tell you? No, you want to check it out now. Alright, so Tom, Lady, and Wesley became these bitter opponents, so much that Wesley finally said, Oh, he's calling We have the Armenian one, deal! We have the original one. Not the 76. But I know you would. But, but no, it doesn't make you a second worker, Grace, Wesley, and Missionary Church Armenian. You just mean what you mean with it. Anyway, point is this. Wait a second, wait a second. Oh, no, 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 no more wait a second. You, no. you, just said, you just said it means what you want it to mean. That's so dangerous. It totally is. Anyway, <laughs> Wesley refused to debate with Top Lady anymore. Wesley says, no, nope, it's it's basically like groveling in the mud with a pig. You know, all it does is make you dirty with wow. the pig. I'm not I'm not doing it. Uh, he, he, said, I, he said, I'm not debating that chimney sweep anymore. All it does is make oh. me dirty. Top Lady wrote this massive two-volume work called Historic Proof of the Doctrinal Calvinism of the Church of England, arguing that the Church of England had always been Calvinist. It always had a strong sense of Calvinism, and Arminian theology is completely Calvin or is completely uh, Catholic. It's Papist. And you go, okay, um, you have to avoid a lot of history. You have to avoid a lot of history for these points to make sense. Because if you remember how the Church of England started, it basically started with Henry going, well, I'll make my own church. <laughs> like, you, won't, you won't let me divorce my current wife? I'm making my own church. I'll do my own thing. And it was only later that they brought somebody in where they were like, could you maybe help us have some theology? You know, cause, cause we kind of started because we were bad, and uh, we probably ought to have some theology. The idea that it's always been staunchly Calvinist. You know, but this is important. This, this book is important. For a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is that on a footnote on page 613, he articulates the main points that are, are contentions between Arminians or the Remonstrants and the Calvinists. What is it that we actually disagree over? And he says, what we disagree on is the doctrines of election, limited redemption, spiritual inability of the human will through original sin, the invincible efficacy of grace and regeneration, and the final perseverance of truly converted persons. Those are the five things we disagree over. Even though they've been debating this for 150 years, this is the first time that anybody had ever put in print, succinctly, the five basic points of Calvinism. 
as such in this one little thing. Let me just list the five things like that. It wasn't until 1905 that somebody came up with the acronym of TULIP so that you could remember it. But this, Augustus Toplady, Rock of Ages dude, is the one who came up with, essentially, the five points of Calvinist. Well, technically, Jacob Arminius came up with the five points of Calvinist. Deal. You know, he's the one that's like, these are the five things I disagree with. But top lady is the one that's like, let me list. Let me just summarize, encapsulate. These are the five. And then McAfee in 1905 goes, and it's easy to remember. Here, tulip. Total it's depravity. important to read the footnotes. It's always important to read the footnotes. If, if any of you have ever read my books, it's important to read the footnotes. All right. 1763, George III issued his proclamation. We talked about this last week. Remember how before the, the Seven Years' War uh, and after the Seven Years' War, the American continent looked considerably different. And so George III had, had, had said, since we gained Canada and Florida, but we also created friction with the natives, how about we're going to declare no British colonists are going to go west of the Mississippi. They're going to go north into Canada and south into Florida. They're going to occupy the territory because we got no money. So I can't, like, lodge troops there. But I can have us live there. I can have British people occupy, and I'm not going to torque off the natives by taking any more land. Really good idea. We occupy our own territory. No Native Americans are upset with us anymore. Win, 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 win. Actually, it does make a lot of sense. Except that, as we talked about, the colonists said, we just spent ten to seven years fighting and dying for us, and you just corralled us on our continent, because it's our continent. And you told us we couldn't go anywhere, sitting there there across the sea. <sighs> you guys just don't get us, do you? I get what he was trying to do. Not probably a great idea. Two years later... England instituted the Stamp Act. Not the Stamp Act. Not the Stamp Act. <laughs> well, do you remember this? Or do you, are you, are you being, yeah. yeah, yeah, this is where the things where you sit there and you go, oh, this is going to be a problem. Again, French and Indian War, Seven Years' War, whatever you want to call it, left England and George III extremely powerful, extremely well positioned, very well fortified, great navy, no money at all, right? One of the most dangerous things sometimes is to win a war. Because you're like, yeah, we got all this stuff, but none of the money. Yeah. Everybody knows that if you're on enough money, you just make more. Or, or, or you just say, our grandchildren will pay this back. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they could not call China. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just, why is having no money an issue for them at this point? Because who cares? Start. You can just borrow it and make some. Except you're England and nobody likes you right now, so you can't borrow it from anybody. So, under Prime Minister George Grenville, Parliament says, tell you what, how do we figure out how to not have not money? How do we not have massive economic problems? And he said, well, since most of the actual expense was incurred in the Americas, and since the American colonists pay relatively little taxes, they don't pay anywhere near as many taxes as the guy sitting in London. The guy sitting in London pays tons of taxes, the Americans pay very little. So how about this? Why don't we just tax the Americans? Kind of bring them up to the same... They're British citizens, but they're paying less taxes than other British citizens. And since we just spent the money on them, why don't we just have them pay a tax that makes them a little bit more equivalent to other British citizens? And everybody in Parliament goes, that makes sense. That's fair. Because we're not asking them to pay more than anybody else. Then they should be represented. So Parliament issues the stamp tax. It requires that all printed materials in the Americas be printed on paper products imported from England. And then taxes all paper products imported from England. Puts a little stamp on it. The Stamp Act. This is not a problem. Nobody had a problem with the concept. They already had a Stamp Act. Back in 1712, they already had a Stamp Act that did this sort of thing. Everybody said, that's all right. It served a dual purpose of getting money for the crown and making sure that there weren't as many newspapers saying, you know, printing as many things on expensive paper saying things that the government shouldn't make. Well, it's like Stamp Acts. You know, so it's like, it was a way to kind of control things a little bit. Problem is, is that it's a tax specifically levied against the American colonies. The idea that you're taxing the paper isn't the issue. They're like, yeah, I get that. It's prohibitively expensive to import paper from England. And now they have to do it. And now you have to pay a tax on the paper you've imported. But beyond that, it's not the high cost. What's the problem? Donna, you just said it. Yeah, they're like, 
when we did the 1712 Stamp Act, representatives of Parliament debated it. The representative of the people getting taxed. Y'all sat there and said, oh, it makes total sense to tax the Americans. Here's the thing. We might have even agreed with you. We might have even said, you're right, we, we pay a lot less taxes than everybody else. Probably not, but we might have. But you just sat there. If we're British citizens, if they're, if they're taxing us because we're British citizens, then give us representation. Exactly. So again, the colonists feel like there's a distant government taking advantage of us. This isn't fair. You guys treat us badly. Wasn't anybody happy about, well, we just won the interior part, and the St. Lawrence Seaway and the Great Lakes are all ours now. Yippee, skippy. Wasn't anybody happy about that? I'm going to give you a cupcake. It's a really good cupcake. Are you happy with that? <laughs> are you happy with your cupcake? Sure. And here's a lobster dinner. Would you like that? Sure. Okay, this is mine now. But, um, you know, it, it, <laughs> aren't you happy? You just got a cupcake and a lobster dinner. And this shoe, this is mine now. <laughs> aren't you happy? repeatedly you just go stop it I'm like okay so a bunch of people didn't like this you got men such as, as Ben Franklin and Patrick Henry a group called the Sons of Liberty they got together to say this ain't right this is an illegal law among the people in the Sons of Liberty were names like Samuel Adams and Paul Revere and Benedict Arnold, all these patriots, these American heroes, right? He was, he was a I know, hero. it's amazing. If you say Patrick Henry, can you say that name without thinking patriot? Can you say Paul Revere without thinking patriot? Can you say Benedict Arnold without going traitor, traitor, traitor? Forty-nine good things kicking in the shin. Well, Benedict Arnold was a war hero. And then he tried to turn West Point over to the British. Yeah, but he was a war hero. Traitor, traitor, traitor. My point. Anyway. So protests break out all over the place. Including, especially, all the newspapers. Like Ben Franklin's newspaper. Like, we really have a problem with this. Why? Because newspapers are printed on paper. This is before blocks. So it's like, yeah, we're totally using up our paper to say, don't tax our paper. We build... Paper Absolutely. In the US? Absolutely. Of course, that's illegal because the law now says you have to import them from, from England. So if you build a paper mill like they started doing, the British are like, well, we're going to send troops over. And the Sons of Liberty said, I thought that was the whole promise. You couldn't afford to. <laughs> You're all the way over there making me some paper. Private still, you know. It is. <laughs> Moonshiners of paper. Get them revenues. Actually, they got a little bit of that earlier on in Queen Anne's War, even. But yes, this is <laughs> increasingly we are we. That Boston preacher named uh, Jonathan Mayhew gave this protest a catchy catchphrase, which is No taxation without representation. Because it would take a preacher. You know, there's like, there's either alliteration or rhyming, but you're going to walk away with a three point sermon on no taxation, uh, representation. You forgot the acrostic. Or an acrostic, you're right. All right. In England, the biggest opponent to Grenville Stamp Act was the, big, the first who stood the most against it. What? Nope. King George III. King George III said, I know we need the money. Desperately need the money. I'm flat broke. But taxation without representation is unconstitutional. It's wrong. Wait, we can't do it. Knew that it was unconstitutional? He was born in England. We talked about this guy last week. This guy was born in England. We like this guy. I wish I didn't like him. As a patriot, I'm supposed to not like him. He was opposed to Yeah, he was his biggest opponent. So George III stood up to Parliament to defend the British Constitution and actively fought against the tax that benefited his own government. He's like, I don't want the dirty money because it's immoral. Oh, I know. Can you remember I said last week? I can't help but like the guy. 
This is a guy who prayed every day, who, who refused to have any kind of mistresses, who's like, I love my wife. I didn't know her before I got married. I met her like the day we got married. I was in love with somebody else. And we stayed married for what? Was it like 57 years or something like that? I love my wife. George III, Alistair Glenville, brought in a new guy as prime minister, and together they got the Stamp Act repealed. Only the last couple months. And people go, right, we've made England yeah, topple. And you go, totally what it George yeah. III made England topple. In fact, 1766, New York General Assembly commissioned a statue of George III on Bowling Green, citing, quote, the innumerable and singular benefits received from our most gracious sovereign since the commencement of this auspicious reign, during which they have been protected from the fury of a cruel, merciless, and savage enemy, the French and Indians, and lately from the utmost confusion and distress by the repeal of the Stamp Act. In testimony, therefore, of their gratitude and in reverence due to his sacred person and character, resolve that this house will make provision for an equestrian statue, him on a nifty horse, uh, of his present majesty, our most gracious sovereign, to be erected in the city of New York to perpetuate to the latest posterity for all time to our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren the deep sense this colony has of the eminent and singular blessings derived from him during his most auspicious reign. George III was an American hero. Oh yeah, 1776, the statue was actually ripped out and broken into pieces, and they defaced it and chopped his face apart and spat on it and called him a horrible, intolerable tyrant. So that whole, to the latest posterity, lasted 10 years. Actually, not even, because actually, I think it only got put up in 1770. So it lasted like six years. Oh, yeah, these things take time. Well, yeah, it takes you a while to chisel. But the point is, it's, you sit there and you go, we needed a bad guy. Who's the bad guy? Parliament. Oh, I can't, I can't. Yes. Yeah, how do you burn Parliament in effigy? <laughs> Look, I built a little Parliament. Parliament for ants? Exactly. So you got to find a bad guy and you go, George III. Now, there are some things that George did, and we'll talk more about that. But I want you to remember, in general, he tried his level best over and over and over again to avoid any kind of conflict with colonies. He was our biggest supporter and our biggest friend in England. We tend to consider him now a tyrant because we needed a face to an enemy. Learn from that. The next time you know, people are like, it's all about Osama bin Laden. You know, Why is it all about this one guy? Why is it all about... Saddam Hussein. Why is it all about Hitler? Why is it? Because you need a face. You need one person to hate. Now, you can sit there and go, well, but Hitler started it. Right. But he's not the sum total of Nazis. I would sit there and go, yeah, Mengele is worse than Hitler. Himmler was worse than Hitler. Hitler just was in power and driving it, but no, there are worse Nazis. But you need a face. You nobody, but all, nobody, nobody had little Hitler mustaches after World War II, right? Before then, look at Oliver Hardy and all that kind of stuff, and Charlie Chaplin, you go, oh, those were kind of the thing. After World War II, ain't nobody calling himself Adolf, calling their kids Adolf. Ain't nobody wearing a little Hitler mustache. Why? Because he's, an, he's the Nazi. Point is, we need a face. Six to 1765, Joseph II becomes Holy Roman Emperor. Unfortunately, he had to be co-ruler with his widowed mother, the Empress Maria Theresa, which meant that for about the first 15 years of his reign, uh, he didn't do much of anything. He pretty much was playing the second fiddle until she finally died in 1780, having birthed 15 other children, including her son Leopold and her daughter Maria Antonia, who went to France, where they called her Marie Antoinette. We'll talk about her a little bit later. Once 1780 hit, Joseph goes nuts. He's like, all right, now I'm in charge. And like Friedrich and Catherine, he expands his military strength. At the same time, he tries to streamline his empire. He's king of Austria-Hungary, king of the Holy Roman Empire. He basically is king of all of this, all of Central Europe. However, it's still messed up. It's this patchwork, right? Hungary speaks a totally different language than Germany does, than Saxony does. The Holy Roman Empire, we're still showing to be this patchwork quilt of duchies and things, right? He's like, okay, this is so not working right. So, he's like, I'm going to issue 17,000 new laws and edicts during my term of office. I'm going to modernize, I'm going to regulate the government, I'm going to make German the compulsory language across the empire. Um, by the way, the Bavarians go, woot, woot. And the 
Hungarians and Belgians go, what? <laughs> now, is he just being Germanocentric because he's German and he's a jerk? What's the benefit of saying, okay, everybody in the entire empire speaks one language. They can speak other languages, but they have to speak this one. Yeah. Yes. Now, I'm not saying, and, and today sometimes we struggle with this, we're like, don't speak Spanish, speak American. Like, speak Spanish. No, you should speak Spanish. It's your language. But I encourage you, if you're here in the United States, there's a lingua franca here. You really are going to work better. We're going to have a more cohesive understanding of things if we can all speak one language. Well, I speak Polish. Good! You bring identity to that. You bring a richness to us. That's awesome. Please, teach us how to speak Polish. I encourage you to have a Polish neighborhood where you can connect with people. But if you can't speak to the Germans across in the next block over, and you can't speak to the Italians the block on the other direction, then you'll always be a clump of Italians, a clump, a clump of Polish, and a clump of Germans sitting in the middle of New York City together. I want you to be able to be Italians and Germans and Polish, but New Yorkers. And that's what he's saying is, I want you all to be part of one empire. Well, and then there's the money issue, too. Everybody has currency. Exactly. He also changes his relationship with Rome, including making German the compulsory language of the worship services, instead of Latin. Because I want my people to understand it. Makes total sense, right? Okay, the enlightened emperor of the Holy Roman Empire is much more enlightened than he was holy or Roman. Okay? Catherine was like, I am such a strong Orthodox person. I want it all to myself. You know, but anyway, he did not see himself as particularly religious. Like most enlightened thinkers, he's like, you know, religion's kind of contrary to reason. It's It doesn't make a lot of sense. And so he's like, I'm going to consciously try to undermine the strength of the Catholic Church inside of our borders. I, I'm going to take over church lands and tithes for the royal treasury, just like Catherine did. I'm going to name myself the guardian of Catholicism, so who needs a pope? I'm here to take care of everything. Right? I'm going to start making my own bishops and priests. And any new bishop or priest, to be a bishop or priest within the Holy Roman Empire, of course, they need to sign an oath to the God's Holy Roman Emperor. It sounds like he took a note from the Pope in China. Actually, he took a, what he took a note from was more like Charlemagne and even Constantine. His government was also the first, one of the first states to make marriage a civil institution, as opposed to a religious institution. And we sit there today and say, actually, it's probably good that it's helpful that in some way, and other times we go, no, it's a horrible thing. That it's a... Fine, a lot of that points back to Joseph, though. This idea of saying, oh, you can be married in a church and married in the eyes of God, but to regulate this, you're also married by specific state-ordained ministers and things, and it's a state-run thing. And as part of his de-Romanization of uh, the Holy Roman Empire, which itself is an interesting idea, he issued a patent of toleration for all religions, including Protestants and Jews. It's like, you're all welcome here. You don't have to be a Roman Catholic to be part of the Holy Roman Empire. You're allowed your own congregations. Think about how huge that is. You're in the Holy Roman Empire, the last great bastion of the church is in charge of everybody from the emperor down. And he goes, yeah, Lutherans, have your own congregations. Anabaptists, have your own congregations. Jews, have your own congregations. Jews, um, you're going to have to speak German. I'm going to encourage you not to wear your weird Jewish clothing. you got to wear, like, proper, real clothes. But if you do, if you're willing to speak German and wear, you know, like grown-up clothes instead of the weird stuff that you guys wear, then you can totally be German with us. Again, if you're Jewish and you find yourself going pretty much everywhere I go other than maybe Poland and now recently Russia, we get persecuted. There they say, you can totally be Jewish here, but you've got to act and look like us. A bunch of Jews went, mm, yeah, okay. So little by little, Jewish identity is getting chipped away, but you do get these pockets of Judaism. What do you call a pocket of Judaism, especially if there's a pocket of Jews that live like near a, an urban center, like in in Poland, in Krakow, and those kinds of places. What do you what do you call it? There's a there's a specific word that the Polish came up with for talking. Actually, it comes out of Italian. Anyway, for a clump of Jews living near an urban center in their own pocket, a ghetto. So the concept of the ghetto starts emerging here, where you go, you have your own cultural identity. Is that a neat thing? Yay, we have our own ghetto. Or is that a, you stay in your ghetto thing? At this point in history, it's a, yeah, 
as time goes on, people start going, oh, I kind of like this idea of making sure that those Germans don't come here, those, those African Americans don't come here, those Italians don't come into our neighborhood. Keep them in their own ghettos. For the first time in centuries, though, the House of Habsburg is not particularly papal. They're not particularly supportive of that. And so you start getting the end of Rome's control, political control, increasingly, starting with Joseph. Rome starts going, all we can do now is try to exert political influence. We don't have political power anymore. It's kind of a huge thing. But he torches everybody off. As you might imagine, I mean, religious tolerance, all of a sudden Rome goes, well, we kind of hate you now. Germanization, and Belgium and Hungary go, well, we kind of hate you now. Focus on meritocracy. You're only going to get a job if you're good at it. If, if you can actually do it, you're, if you're smart, if you're competent, then you get prestige. And so all the nobles go, my family's had this job for the last 200 years. Yeah, you've done it badly for the last 200 years. I'm giving it to this guy. He's not even noble blood, but he's good at it. So all of his nobles go, okay, then I hate you. Patronage of the arts and sciences means you need money to build your schools, to all those beautiful paintings. Every time you look at a beautiful painting or beautiful sculpture or an awesome science textbook that comes out of an emperor's background, it comes because there was a stable empire somewhere, you should say, praise God that there was stability enough to bring this about. And you should also say, how many people died of starvation so that this book could print it? How many people died of starvation? How many children died so that this sculpture could be made? Now, I'm not saying that art is bad. I have great respect for it. I'm just saying everything has a cost. And so when you see some of these beautiful pieces of art, perfect example, best example in the world is Versailles. Go there, and you go, huge, beautiful, wonderful, amazing, and all the Louis who put their stuff into Versailles knew full well that their people were starving in the streets and they were fine with it. Remember when we talked about the throne so heavy it actually fell through the floor because it was made of solid gold? So they had to build a new throne and reinforce the floor. It cost millions and millions of francs at a time when he knew that his people were starving. So, all the people, common people, sat there and go, well, I kind of hate Joseph. I'm not going to university. I can't read a book. I heard that there's a painting somewhere, but I haven't seen it. My children are dying. We don't have enough money for bread. Yes, but he's a patron of the arts. And my children are dying. We don't have enough money for bread. So is he a good thing or a bad thing? Is it good to, 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 to support the arts if your people... Isn't this the exact same thing we have today? Should we support the educational system of our country? If so, we don't necessarily have as much money as we'd like to feed the poor. But in order to protect that, we need to have a strong military. And people say, but... But I don't want to put money toward the military, I want to put money toward the children. You go, okay, if we defund our military, and we pay all of our money toward our children, then bad people come over and take all of our stuff, and including your children. Well, but I don't want you to pay for the military. Okay, I understand that. Well, I would really like to help the children, but we've got to pay for them. There's only so much money to go around, and you have to try to figure out what to fund to make everything work. That's part of why I never want to be president, because there's never a good answer to this. Joseph, by the time he died in 1788, Joseph's empire had open revolts everywhere, especially in Belgium and Hungary. He didn't have enough military for all the revolts going on everywhere. Even from his own nobles, they're all revolting against him. When he, di when he died, he asked that his epitaph and his tombstone would read, Here lies Joseph II, who failed at all he undertook. I, and again, I look at him and I'm like, I, I don't necessarily appreciate some of the rationale. I don't necessarily appreciate some of the stuff that you did. But I get that you were genuinely trying to make everything better, but you understood better to be. And it's like, I realize, as I look at this, as I'm dying, none of this will survive. Everything I've tried to do is going to fall apart. What's interesting is the new emperor, his brother Leopold, that we talked about before, didn't put that on his tombstone. What Leopold put on his tombstone was, here lies Joseph II, emperor and hero who knew no rest in his life. He sacrificed his life for the glory of his country. For his people, he did as much good as he could without using violence, which was against his principles. Whether or not he ever knew it, the good that a prince does in life is recognized after his death. <coughs> oh my God. Yeah, that's a... Oh, This is...
something to remember every time you sit there and go, everything I do is pointless, it all falls apart, you go, let God figure that part out. 1767, the Jesuits are going to have some problems. And we'll pick that up next week. Yes? You're talking about uh, cities, Polish uh, uh, living together. About 35 years ago, we always stayed in Toronto on our way east. And, uh, they were trying to make it a homogeneous, this real international city. Okay. But then they decided it's better to be a mosaic where you have neighborhoods because they seem to uh, grow better than trying to adapt to the other. Now, they may have changed from that, but that was about 35 years yeah. ago when we were out there. And Again, let me let me go back to what I was saying about white hats, black hats, complexity. There's good and bad in anything. Anything that anything that has power has the ability for that to go south, but also has the ability to go well. So you go, did the ghettos protect the Jews? And you go, arguably, yeah. I mean, like even from the Nazis, let's go there. The, the ghettos actually protected the Jews. That they had other Jews that they could be with and can support and everything. Yeah. Did the ghettos cause them problems with Nazis? And you go, yeah, because all the Jews are concentrated in one spot. You know, so the Nazis are like, just find them there. So, yes, are, 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 is it good when you say all of us like-minded people clump together and support one another? You go, absolutely. Is it bad when everybody goes, I'm just going to clump with like-minded people and, and we're going to do our thing? That's not necessarily good. And it's never good when somebody sits there and goes, I'd appreciate it if you would just go stand over there with all of the other people like you. That's never a good thing. So, I mean, it's, it's complicated. In, urban, in terms of urban speak, in terms of what works, you go... Is it helpful to have pockets of, of ethnicity, or is it undermine well, lots of different things to have pockets of ethnicity? And the answer is yes. And so you, the, the best thing is to, is to allow people that opportunity to have mobility. It's like, do you want to live next to another Italian? OK, great. I, I like it in this neighborhood. There's an Italian restaurant. I, I don't really like Polish food, and I like Italian food. And this is where I grew up with, and this tastes like my mom's recipe. So yeah, I kind of like this. You know? Praise God, knock yourself out. If you go, oh, I, I don't want to have to be stuck here. I kind of want to be able to live where I want to live. It's like, praise God, knock yourself out. Ideally, that's the way to go. Until it gets complicated. But in general, people don't like complicated. In general, people like really simple rules. Our core, as humanity, we tend to be Pharisees, which is why Pharisees were Pharisees. At our core, we kind of just say, why don't you just give me 13 rules, or even 400 rules to follow, so I don't have to think about this. And why don't we just keep those people over there, or why don't we just do this kind of thing? This is just so much simpler. And you just go, it doesn't make it better. Um, there are some things about that that make sense. There are a lot of things about that that don't. <coughs> the Jesuits, and I'll end with this, the Jesuits got in trouble in large part because they just didn't do things cookie-cutter way that other people did. I mean, they... They didn't do what the Catholic Church wanted them to do. Well, you know what? There's two things. Number one, they did things the way they genuinely thought were good. And number two, they were good at it. If you do something that the, the, the power elite doesn't like, but you stink at it, you're a joke. If you do something the power elite doesn't like, and you're good at it, you're a threat, right? And so for years, the Catholic Church had been seeing the Jesuits as a threat. You guys... Don't do what anybody wants you to do, and you don't do it really, really well. So somebody's got to stop that. So if you've been liking the, the, the Jesuits, and I don't think I'd give them a white hat, but they've got like a dusty beige one. I mean, this is <laughs> pretty decently colored hat here. Um, the, the, the Jesuits, if you've been going, hey, Jesuits, yay, Jesuits, yeah, next week is going to be a little hard. But, like I said, there's different things that are intolerable to people. Different things that people go, I can't handle the stamp act. I can't handle the proclamation. I can't handle Wesleyan's. I can't handle Calvinists. I can't handle Peter, my husband. I can't handle that you honor Jesus differently than I do. So I would encourage you, as we, as we end with this, to stop and think, what is it that is intolerable to us? What's interesting is, if you really want to get down to it, for the last several decades, a lot of what has been intolerable to Christians is how other Christians do things. 
and we tend to look at some of the other things that probably should be intolerable to us and go, man, it's a broken world. Like your brother is is dying on the street. He's hungry, and you did nothing to help him. Didn't, didn't Jesus specifically say something about that? You, there are people who have never heard of Jesus Christ, the only thing that can save them. And you say, well, it's a broken world. Okay? Well, I'm a Baptist, which means you're reformed. I want nothing to do with you. In fact, we're going to have a meeting right now about how maybe the pastor is a little more reformed, a little less reformed than we want him to be, and how this is going to be like, you're, you're having home ministries based on reforming the church instead of having ministries based on doing specifically the stuff that Jesus asked us to do. I'm not saying that the other discussions aren't worthwhile, but what do you find intolerable? Why have you let that go on? And again, we're coming up on a time when a young man, and I'm going to go back to something Caleb brought up. It's a very, very man. Very soon we're going to come to a young man who becomes a Christian. He'd been a gambler, he'd been a drinker, and he became a Christian. And really wanted to get his life right. And realized, I feel called to go into politics, but I also feel called to be a Christian. I don't know what to do. And so he goes and talks to a former slave owner named Newton. And says, should I become a priest? Should I... What should I do? I, I feel called to go into politics, but I don't know what to do. And John Newton says, please go into politics. We desperately need an evangelical Christian because somebody, somewhere, needs to stop slavery. And so Wilberforce did exactly that. It's like, I will be in politics, and I will make my one gong that I bang over and over and over again be that this has to end because it is intolerable. And one of the things that Wilberforce argued is the most intolerable thing to me about slavery is that my brothers and sisters have tolerated it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that you never lose sight of what is what is something we can show one another grace on and love one another well and allow difference in. And what are things that you genuinely say why would you ever tolerate this in your midst? Lord, I pray, help us to learn from what's gone before, to look at our lives and say, Lord, what is it that I have made the gong I bang, the drum I beat? Is this where your heart beats? Or is this just where my heart beats? Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to start and, and work in everything we do from your perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.